Hey team, you're about to experience my interview with co-founder and CEO of Predico, Yuri Moscovich. Predico is a app for Shopify stores and it is a demand planning app. However, it is so much more than that. It allows Shopify merchants to better plan their inventory holding patterns. It allows them to forecast and model out demand over time. It allows them to tie up less money in inventory that isn't going to move. It helps them manage their POs and everything else to do with inventory planning and stock management. This was an amazing interview. Enjoy. This is the e-commerce edge podcast with your host, Jason Greenwood. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Pod. It is my pleasure to welcome Yuri Moscovich from Predico to the podcast. Welcome, Yuri. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me and looking forward to the conversation. I am as well. And you were telling me off air just before we jumped on that you are friends with Paul from Ubu, and I recently had him on the pod and recently released his episode. And so you said, look, we were talking about being on the podcast and then you reached out to me and you said, hey, why don't we, why don't we talk about Predico on the pod as well? Yeah, exactly. I think you guys had a fantastic conversation and I'm sure hopefully we'll, we'll be talking about interesting things for the audience and, and what we have to say. I look forward to it. And before we jump straight into your technology, what it does, how it does it, etc., you've, you've been running this business as co-founder and CEO for the last two years. But prior to that, you were head of solutions at Satalia, which was acquired mm -hmm. by WP and you were there for three and a half years and you're working across artificial intelligence data science so why don't you tell me just briefly what how your background brought you to this the place where you thought hey i want to create a platform and a technology that is aimed fairly and squarely at e-commerce merchants yeah totally very brief background about myself so I, I grew up in belgium brussels until i was 18 and then i moved to the uk to do my studies so moved to london studied mathematics and started then doing my master's in operations research to find a way to apply the mathematics in a useful and efficient way. And then after that, I found this company. Actually, my wife, my now wife, found this company called Cetalia back then, which was a small startup in artificial intelligence that was essentially doing the practice of the theory that I was learning at university, and that is solving optimization problems. And so I thought that would be like a very cool way to get into the space and not only just work on theoretical problem at university, but try to apply it in real life and see what the impact is. And that's how I joined the company back in 2016 or 17, I think, and then started working on, on some of the projects over there. And it set you up. It feels obviously if you're working with predictive intelligence, if you're working across data science, if you're working across business analytics, across omni-channel solutions, then it feels like that was a very natural of building your curiosity in real life businesses, facing real life business challenges, and then building solutions to, to help businesses deal with those challenges. Yeah, totally. We were back then at Satalia, we were working with a lot of legacy retailers, like very big, large enterprise, 1 billion plus revenue type of customers. And a lot of the optimization problems like predictive and prescriptive analytics tools that we were building for these companies were aimed to solve an optimization problem that was very oftentimes related to their supply chains and their operations system as a whole. And this is how I personally got into retail as a first thing and then second thing within supply chain. And then a lot of the projects we worked on to give you a few examples were you know, solving last mile delivery systems for Tesco, which is the biggest supermarket here in the UK and internationally as well. Then DFS, it's, it's a sofa company here in the UK, has plenty of retail stores. They wanted to have a footfall prediction system to allocate their workforce accordingly. That was the second. And then there was a lot of those others that we worked on, which were inventory sales forecasting, inventory planning, and so forth. And so that's how we got very familiar with the space and the problem itself. And when I say we, by the way, this is myself and my co-founder today, who back then was a data scientist for the company. And as a two French-speaking guys, we were in the office chatting a lot. And so that's how we built the relationship and started thinking about Predico. And yeah, that, that's how the background came to be. Love it. Love it. And I used to think that supply chain was about just about the most boring component 
of commerce that you could possibly imagine, like just a necessary evil. And I only thought that right up until the point when I was still working brand side and one of the brands that I was working inside of as an employee, we replatformed all of our back office technologies, including ERP, CRM, OMS, IMS, and WMS. We had a bespoke prior to me coming to the company. We had a completely bespoke built order and warehouse management platform. And then we moved from that to PeopleVox, which is a SaaS-based warehouse management platform. And as I went through that process of scoping in that solution into the broader technology stack that we were running as a business, and then when I saw the positive impact of that technology on our business from a, an efficiency perspective, from a space utilization perspective, from a customer experience perspective of being able to get products out the door faster to customers, having better analytics across our stock holdings and supplier performance and being able to set better min-maxes so that we were out of inventory less often. I found that when I started to dig under the bonnet of this and when we started to think about the warehouse organizational aspects and putting in a carousel to be able to bring products from the back of the warehouse to the front of the warehouse in an automated way that didn't require a human being to walk a thousand miles a day from back to front of the warehouse. And, and then when I saw the fact that my metrics that I was measured on as an e-commerce manager, things like conversion rate, et cetera, were so dramatically impacted by the percentage of out-of-stocks we would have at any given point in time. If we were, when we started measuring that, there was a direct correlation between products being out of stock or the percentage of catalog that was out of stock at any given point in time and our conversion rate. And so definitely inventory management, warehouse management, demand planning in any serious business logistics both internal as well as any third-party logistics and any carriers that you work with and then of course when we think about reverse logistics all of this has such a dramatic impact on the customer experience when they interface with our business that it is just way overlooked I, and i think it's seriously undervalued has that been your experience too a hundred percent. I think you said a, a, a lot of very right things here, but when you look at it in a simple way, you can be as efficient in sales and marketing as you want to be. If you don't have your product in stock, you are losing money. You Not only are you losing money, but you spend money to get the customer through the door. He, the customer is there, he's willing to purchase, but your inventory is not there, so you're missing out on revenue. And same thing goes when you're spending way too much money on products that you don't really sell, then you're not an efficient business in the sense that you've got overstock, you're paying for way too much storage. And you now need to liquidate that stock that doesn't sell because you want to obviously get some money out of the door to invest in the products that do sell. And so for that, what do you do? You make some promotions that you obviously don't want to do from a marketing perspective, but you have to because all of a sudden you need to get that money back and reinvest in the proper way. Definitely what we have seen our experience, and actually this is like the continuation of, the, of the, your previous questions, how we got into this is that we saw that this was one of the key things that the very large enterprise were focusing on optimizing. And then my wife is an online jewelry brand and she, during COVID, she was just like anybody, was hit by the supply chain issues, with lead times getting longer, with the fact that you can obviously do everything manually on your Excel spreadsheets up to a certain point when it comes to planning your demand and your supply. And so when you're starting to scale the brand and you're being hit by more auto stocks, like more frequently and also overstock, you're starting to wonder like, how can I do this in a more efficient way? And so that's how we basically got into the Shopify space, like e-commerce space, generally speaking of SMBs, because we realized Okay, these guys, like 90% of them are doing everything manually, reconciling the data, doing their forecast based on guesstimates, and then trying to put together a plan for their supply, give visibility to their suppliers, then satisfy the terms from their suppliers. All of this requires a lot of effort. And if you're not being helped in a certain way, you can make mistakes that can be detrimental to your business. And so that's how we really got into the space because we realized, shit, there's this very large companies over there that are spending a lot of time and money into this in optimizing this and we can see how the return on investment has been enormous and we then see the smaller brands that are getting into it more and more forced by the supply chain issues during covid this is becoming a key topic for them to solve but they don't really have a solution to help them do that in an efficient way so that's how we really got into the space 
And if I think back to when I had my pure play e-commerce business, wait, and this is many years ago, before I ever started getting into the agency space, et cetera, and started consulting to businesses, it was basically a two-person company. Me and my co-founder, I was responsible for all of the e-commerce technology and the operations and marketing. And he was responsible for all of the sourcing, supplier negotiation, contracts, all that sort of stuff. And as good as he was at that, and he had been working in supply chain and sourcing for over a decade before we started our business together, and even he struggled to do effective demand planning because the spreadsheet approach, it is not dynamic enough in most instances to be able to ch deal with changes in the supply chain, both when you, for example, swap out one supplier for another supplier, or you have tandem supply for the same SKU because one supplier may have it half the time and the other supplier may have it half the time, but they perform differently, meaning that they, they hold different levels of stock and the rate at which they ship it to you differs and the distance from you, so the time it takes to get freighted to you differs. So there's so many facets and factors that I guess go into proper demand planning. So we're not just talking about inventory planning here, we're talking about demand planning. And there's, if, I think if we look out across the Shopify ecosystem, if you log into the Shopify app store, there's probably 20 or 30 apps in there that talk about some form of demand planning or inventory planning. In fact, the most, probably the most famous app out there is Inventory Planner, which was acquired by Bright Pearl, and then they were presently, subsequently acquired by Sage, and now they're owned by Sage. And, and, and that's one of the most popular apps in the App Store. So clearly, this is a challenge, similar to marketing automation for brands. This is a challenge that almost every brand faces when they get over – I guess if you're so small that you're only doing 50 orders a month, maybe you don't need to think about it. But if you're doing anything over about 20 orders a day, we're starting to get into a situation where the variables expand geometrically that you're trying to track to make sure you don't run out of stuff. 100%. If you look at what are you trying to optimize efficiently, effectively, sorry, you're trying to optimize your time and you're trying to optimize money, right? Like the bottom line of your business. And when you're scaling as a business, you start spending more and more time on that Excel spreadsheets because you've got more SKUs, you've got more suppliers, you've got more customers. And the potential, how can I put it, the potential issue that this can cause, the potential detrimental issues that this can cause if you're out of stock or overstock become exponentially bigger. And the complexity around solving the demand planning problem and supply planning problem and finance planning problem because becomes as well exponentially more complex as, your, as these variables basically grow. And you find yourself, and you said it the right way, isn't it? Like when you're a small brand, you're starting out, just like any startup, for example, you're trying to find your product market fit. You don't really care about your planning because you're trying to figure out which product is going to sell the most. But as soon as you find your top bestsellers and you want to make sure that you become a lean product, that you think about your margins, your profitability, you want to get this completely. And doing things manually, as you said, is very complex because, and this is something that we noticed with the smaller brands versus the larger brands. The larger brands have a very complex supply chain. But they've got so much budget that they basically pay you as a business to develop something completely bespoke to their business. And mm -hmm. so they will spend millions, but they will have millions in returns and their ROI will be insane. So they're looking for any extra percentage point in accuracy in your demand planning so that this can actually be a, an enormous return on investment. For smaller brands, the, the smaller brands are looking for simplicity. They're looking to streamline their operations as a first thing so that you can reconcile the data automatically. You can make sure to switch from one supplier to the other and understand what's the consequence of that from a lead time and reorder point perspective. And all of that is, is very crucial for the brands to get their operations lean and efficient. And that's ultimately what we're doing. And I'm more than happy to get into demand planning specifically, but that also is a very difficult exercise, especially if you do it manually. I think you raised such a valid point, which is that if I think back to that system update that I told you about where we changed all of our systems, we went from manual demand planning and basically our procurement manager was responsible for all of the demand planning calculations that they were running. And we had over 200 suppliers. We had over 25,000 SKUs. This was a this is a pretty big operation to be running yeah. manually. And our existing ERP at the time had no demand planning module at all inside of it. But when we upgraded to a new ERP and a new WMS, the ERP, which we moved to NetSuite, had a very good 
demand planning module built in, but bloody hell do you pay for it? That's an enterprise, that's an enterprise class solution. But we were, at that point, we were a big enough enterprise to justify moving from manual demand planning and inventory management to, to I guess, data-informed and system-informed inventory and demand planning management. Now, there's a whole lot of businesses that fall in the middle of that. They're not tiny, meaning they're not a startup anymore, but they're not big enough to justify an investment in a top tier or even a second tier ERP like a NetSuite. And so they slip through the cracks of business systems, right? They're not big enough to justify this massive expenditure on an enterprise system, but they're too small, to, or they're too big to do everything manually. And it feels like this is exactly where your system plugs in. You're not targeting the enterprise class guys because they're either doing, they're either using some bespoke system or they're using their ERP to do it, right? But you fill that really fat middle gap of not the S in SMB, but the M in MB. And it feels like you are absolutely, that is your ICP. You are not enterprise. You're not the smallest end of town, but you are in the fat middle, which is actually where the vast majority especially of D2C brands find themselves. They're in the middle. They're not enterprise and they're not tiny. Yeah, that's exactly right. When joining an ERP and placing that decision to say, I'm going to buy an ERP right now, I'm going to implement an ERP is a very, it's a big decision to make. You, you need to look at it very carefully because you're in for an implementation of eight to 12 months with consultants that will cost you tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then the license fee for the NetSuite or the Microsoft Dynamics of this world is again within the 10, if not the hundreds of thousands of dollars per year. And what I hear often is you have, you know, we live by the less is more sort of mentality by design in terms of the product and the features that we've got, because the customers that we target, as you said, like that middle tier is looking for something that is nice and easy, super accessible. So, you know, you need to be plugging in one click with their Shopify store. You need to be able to set, help them be set up within a couple of days max. And you need to be up and running. And not only that, demand planning, supply planning is not something that is super easy to do, as we said before. So the product needs to be super accessible to be in terms of the design and also the functionality so that it's very easy for them to understand how to navigate through the product and get to the output, which is a smarter purchase order that is just exactly how many units you would need to buy. And you raise a good point. We'll get into the technology soon, but I think you raise a, a super valid point, which is that overstocking is just as detrimental to a business as understocking, right? And I think that businesses overlook that fact. They look at all the lost revenue if they don't have a product, and let's say on average their cart size in terms of quantity is three items, and their average order value is 150 bucks. And they know for a fact that their conversion rate is directly tied to inventory being out of stock because if one of those three items is out of stock, that customer is going to go elsewhere where they can get they can qualify for their free shipping threshold and their rewards points and all that stuff, right? Customers don't like to break up if they can help it. They don't like to take an order and say, okay, my normal supplier of this product is out of stock. I'll buy the two out of three items through them that they have in stock, and I'll buy the one item through somebody else. No, they take their entire order elsewhere. That's just normal human psychology because of the incentives to do that by most merchants. But on the flip side, holding too much stock, tying up too much cash in inventory that is not moving. So you've got these tremendous costs, right? You're not only buying the product that ties up cash. But then you're warehousing it, whether that be in your own warehouse or with a 3PL provider. You're tying up tremendous amounts of capital that really you'd ideally like to use on products that are actually moving in the business and apply the right stock values to each and every individual SKU. So I guess maybe speak a little bit to the impact of of overstocking versus understocking. I think, I think brands really understand the danger and the risk of understocking. But I think they don't always appreciate also the dangers and risks of overstocking. Yeah, so it's a very valid point. As a business, like auto stock equals to missed revenue. It's a missed opportunity. You, as you mentioned, you've got your customer that's it's here. It's on the website. Your marketing team and sales team did a great job. It's there. It's ready to buy. Added things to check out. Oh, actually, out of stock. Maybe I'll go to my competitor now. Maybe I'll just drop the sale. Whatever it is, you're missing out on an opportunity to make money. On the other hand, when you're overstocked, this means that you spend a lot of money into products that effectively do not sell. So there are multiple things that are happening here. The first thing is you're stocking up 
a good amount of products that are not selling. It's in your warehouse and you're paying for that space in that warehouse. And depending on how big your products are, the bill can be quite big. So storing storage costs goes up and product cost goes up as well because you've paid for products that don't sell. And this is typically something that happened quite a lot during COVID because during COVID, when factories were like, okay, we need to shut down, what happened is that there's a lot of companies that placed massive orders just to be like, we never know when, we don't know when our, our factories are effectively going to open up again. So let's just stock up as much as we can and we'll see what happens after. Guess what? After what happened is that these companies found themselves with a lot of inventory that they thought it's a smart idea, we'll just stock up as much as we can. But they found themselves with a lot of inventory that they couldn't really sell. And on top of being money that you spend on products that don't sell, on top of being money and cost that you spend on your storage, it's also money that you cannot spend elsewhere that's growing your business, whether it's sales, whether it's marketing, whether it's the right products like your best sellers, for example, that might also be out of stock. So you've got like a, a double-edged sword here that where you need to find a right balance between the two, because as you said, it, it is very right. It's, it's as equally important to get out of stock set up properly as well as overstock. And you need to find the right balance between the two. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Now, if we think about Predico and we think about how it does what it does, it's an app for Shopify. I'm not sure if you plug into any other e-commerce platforms yet, but you're heavily focused on the Shopify ecosystem, which makes sense from a D2C, BD perspe D2C perspective. They're the 800-pound gorilla in the space. But when we think about how Predico starts to drive these calculations and when we start to think about things like seasonality, when we think about when we think about throughput and momentum of sales of certain products at certain times to certain cohorts, when we start thinking about the impact of promotions on demand against certain SKUs, when we think about bundling, right, and kits that sometimes are put together of combinations of SKUs that drives demand for the individual SKUs that are part of the bundle and the kit, there's so many variables that come into play when you're trying to create a really good demand planning platform, how does Predico deal with all these variables? Yeah. So for those who don't know, just a very quick brief introduction about Predico, what we do today. We are an, you know, a Shopify app, as you said. So we work with Shopify and Shopify Plus brands, and we help them forecast their sales more accurately, recommend them what to order in the right, in timely fashion. And then later on, we'll be financing stock for that those companies as well. And we can get into that as well because financing inventory is also a very big hassle. But essentially what we want to do is to close the loop when it comes to procurement. So it's plan order finance. Now to answer your question, what we do is first of all, you need to get access to the data. And when you plug into a Shopify brand, what type of data do you get access to? You get historical sales, you get historical revenue, you get product level information and anything you know that they do with regards to bundles or subscriptions, depending on the apps you know that they are using already within the space. So this is the level of information that you get, you can get access to. Now to do a good forecast and also when it comes to sales, so demand planning and then supply planning, you need extra information. You cannot just rely on historical sales data and product information, you need much more. So what, what other information do we need? You need supplier information. Who's your supplier? What's their lead time? What's the minimum quantities? Do they have any specific capacity constraints? Anything like that, obviously very important from a supply planning perspective. The other very important thing is, what is your reordering preferences? like? How much stock do you like to have on hand anytime you receive a delivery? Are you more like one month? Is it more a, a quarter worth of inventory that you want to hold for all of your products? Or are you more the type of customers that want to place a PO every week and try to have a high sell-through rate? So this is obviously critically important to be able to adapt from one brand to another and make sure that you're a right fit for these companies. And finally, something that's critical in order for the demand planning to be as accurate as possible is you cannot just rely on the past in order to predict the future. We can track your, we can go through your historical sales data, compute seasonality and growth trends that we see there. But you, as you said, you have promotions that you're planning, influencer marketing, you maybe will do a pop-up, you do a promotion to for a new product launch. And all of these things need to be captured one way or another. And so what we've developed in Predico is a system that will take your historical sales data. We've got our algorithms that will compute seasonality and growth trends and will apply some weights 
on the last few months because this is obviously the months that have been impacting the future plan the most, but it also needs to capture any future events that will have an impact on your sales. And so for that, we've built it, our planning system in a collaborative way so that the user can influence the forecast for any upcoming events that will have an impact on the sales, just as if they were adding new events, if you will, in, in the system. And they can also get their hands dirty in a way and, uh, and work out um, and have an impact directly on the numbers, just like if they were in an Excel spreadsheet. And obviously, when, with Shopify, Shopify also offers their pause, their point of sale system. And so a lot of Shopify merchants or omni-channel merchants, e even if they're using Shopify pause, those orders ultimately end up back in Shopify. And when these guys are going to, say, for example, open up a new retail store, that's going to have an impact on inventory, right? And so th is this the type of event that, hey, in six months' time, we're going to be opening two more retail stores. So based on the performance average across our other existing two or three retail stores, this is the likely impact this is to have on demand in our business and how much stock holding we're going to need to hold. So is that the type of event that you would typically capture in your system? Yeah, there's examples like that. For example, we're opening up a store and there's examples. We're going to do a massive campaign for a product launch, for example. So you need to be able to predict, uh, give them a, a direction of how that product launch is going to be. And you tie that product launch to existing products within the category to at least have an indication of how good how like, good it's likely to do. Exactly, because otherwise you're shooting in the dark and the thing that you hear often from customers is, yeah, we launched that product and we sold out in three days. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is because that was maybe obvious. You, you did a, your marketing team did an awesome job, but unfortunately the marketing team and the merchandise, like the, sorry, the planning team didn't really communicate well enough so that the planning team was like, okay, so if we were planning for a big launch here, and if we know that this product looks very similar to this product, then maybe we should try and see what's the trend for that product. And that at least gives you more data than just figuring, figuring it out from thin air. So these are typically the examples of events that we would want to capture in our system to make sure that we you know we our recommendations, the output of the system, which is how many units you need to buy, when and in what quantity, is as accurate as it can be. And do you find that typically it's ops teams, procurement teams, warehouse management teams that are looking to buy and manage and run the, your technology inside the business? Or is it mostly driven by marketing teams who, again, as you say, they're driving demand, maybe they're driving traffic to a performance marketing campaign that lands on a landing page of a product that, that then could be out of stock. And if they don't have a really good handle on what's out of stock and in stock so that they can turn off campaigns going to products that are out of stock, marketers pull their hair out. It's almost there's this friendly battle that goes on between procurement teams and operational teams trying to be as efficient with the company's money as possible and marketing teams just going, well, don't fucking ever run out of anything ever because we're <laughs> spending so much time, energy, and money to sell these things that if we run out of stock, then it's all for naught. So oftentimes there is this friendly competition between those operational and marketing teams. But who do you see mostly driving demand for your technology or is it pretty equal? Yeah, it's a very good question. So we are working with ops people. It's quite clear that like, we either deal with the founders when the brand is on the smaller side and it's one of the co-founders that's basically taking care of the operations. So the back office versus the other founder who's more like the customer side of things. So the marketing typically. And when the brand is slightly bigger, let's say they pass the $5 million mark and they're growing quite fast. One of the key hires is actually now becoming an ops person that can deal with all of these back office operations uh, activities and uh, inventory the demand planning, supply planning, financial supply is obviously a very big portion of that. So we are working with these ops people on the product. But what we see is when we have a team that has a marketing department or simply a marketing person and an ops person, they like to add the entire team to the platform so that they can collaborate. And that's a very big thing. And when collaborate, just having access to the information is already good enough, right? Because typically they usually don't share the information with each other because the ops person tend to develop a spreadsheet only they understand. And that's one of the very big risks as well in, in the SMB world is like, you're not given a specific template. So you build your own spreadsheets and then, you know, this grows into a massive beast. And then at some point you become a bottleneck for the business because you're like, 
only I understand this, this spreadsheet. If tomorrow I'm being run over by a bus or I go on holiday, something less aggressive, then nobody else can take over. And so that's one of the things as well that we hear from customers that migrate from either the Excel spreadsheets or whatever it might be onto Predico is we want the wider team to have visibility and to be able to collaborate on a system that is completely automated because otherwise we're at risk of finding ourselves in a very big trouble if one person leaves the company or if one person is sick for a couple of weeks even. And I think that's such a huge risk and we always think, or marketers at least, oftentimes think in the sense of channel risk, right? So they say if we're overly dependent on either one sales channel or one marketing channel, then it's massively risky for us. If we're a D2C business, maybe we need to add B2B. Or if we're a B2B business, maybe we need to add D2C to help de-risk our business. Maybe we need to, if we're overly reliant on Google ads, maybe we now need to do some, some meta ads. Maybe we need to focus more on content. Maybe we need to focus more on influencers to de-risk reliance on any one transactional or marketing channel, right? But oftentimes, we don't necessarily, especially these smaller brands, they don't think of the risks of supply chain, but as you say, those risks came absolutely into stark relief during COVID. And so I think a lot of these brands are much more aware of supply chain challenges than they were before, supply chain risk than they were before. Are you seeing that now that COVID is slowly coming to an end and supply mm -hmm. chains are returning somewhat more to normal, are brands still as acutely aware of these supply chain challenges or risks as they were during COVID? Or is it getting back to business as usual where marketing is the most important thing for a brand and supply chain, we just are going to trust that it's always going to be okay? Or is this something that has forever changed the psyche of these brands that they are really acutely aware and taking concrete steps to mitigate against supply chain disruption? Yeah, it's a very important point that you're talking about here. From what I'm seeing, talking to the brands all day, every day, these guys are now very much aware of the situation. I don't know whether they'll keep on being like that over the next couple of years, over the next 10 years. Obviously, it's our job to make sure that they are. This is more on us than anybody else right now. But definitely, COVID helped and was, it obviously was a difficult moment, but it helped raise awareness and educate people around how at risk they can be from a supply chain perspective. And you gave a very valid example. One of the key things that I see with, with our customers or with companies that we speak to is they were relying on one particular supplier that was potentially in another continent, like in Asia, for example. And if that factory shuts down for six months, your company is off. Like you can't sell anything. So you need to be now what we see is like they diversifying the supplier base. They're looking for, for suppliers that are very close to the customers as well. So, for example, if you were just having one supplier in Asia, but your customer base is in Europe, then they will be looking for a second supplier that's maybe in Portugal. So that just in case, if they need to produce something much faster, much easier, maybe it's a little bit more expensive, but at least they've got that option. There you have it. So that's one of the things, for example, that we see quite a lot, whether that supplier actually enables you to produce the same products or another series of products. But that's definitely one thing that we see quite a lot. And same thing goes for shipping, for example, all the companies that were shipping through by air or by freight, either one or another. Now I can I keep on hearing we've got both options and we know that one is much more expensive than the other. But in case we've got like an increase in sale, we don't want to become be out of stock we can ship by air and we've got this figured out. We've done it before and now it's fine. It's nice and easy. It's just more expensive, but at least we are not running at risk of becoming out of stock. So these are typically the type of thing that we hear. And the third one is obviously hiring a person that's, a, that, that's taking care of those operations. Because what we've seen, I think in the Shopify ecosystem over the past 10 years is all of the app ecosystem that was built on top of Shopify was very much geared towards serving the customer side of things. Gorgeous with customer support. You've got recharge. Play-Doh you know, and everything else. Exactly. But now what we see is like we've got an ecosystem of apps that is now serving the back office to make sure that our mission here is really to enable all of these new entrepreneurs to run their operations as efficiently and as profitably as possible. And for that, you need the back office as well. And that's why we're here. I'm seeing exactly the same evidence that you are, that these brands are taking this seriously to the point where I moved from New Zealand to Mexico in February, 
And in the last 12 months, the New Zealand dollar has lost almost 20% of its value versus the peso. The U.S. dollar has lost around 15% versus the peso. Now, that's not because those currencies are weak, or in some cases they are, but the peso has become termed the super peso over the last 18 months or so because of that exact nearshoring philosophy that you referred to. So a lot of brands in the United States, for example, that maybe did all of their manufacturing in Asia, they have moved all or part of their manufacturing to Mexico because it's just across the border. And so they're, they're less susceptible to supply chain disruptions. And so therefore, there are billions of dollars of investment going into manufacturing in Mexico, creating demand for the Mexican peso, as a result, Tesla has even announced they're going to they're going to create a factory in Monterey that's twice the size of their Texas gigafactory. So the reality is, this is all playing out exactly as you have described, to where they're either dual sourcing or they are literally moving their entire supply chain closer to their destination market, to their customer market, so that it can get faster to them and it can get faster to their customers, and they are less susceptible to supply chain disruptions, right? So I, I think that this is such a big priority for brands. They really got burnt bad. In fact, the supply chain disruptions during COVID actually put a ton of businesses out of business. They literally went out of business as a result of supply chain disruptions. And a lot of these other brands that watched them and maybe made it through by the skin of their teeth, they are being much more cautious about how they manage inventory now. Yeah, and we've been talking about suppliers, but we can talk also about 3PL. So the, the logistic partners that are fulfilling those orders, like obviously you have a partner, let's say your US based brand, sorry, you've got a partner, logistic partner in your state. But let's say you start selling in more states or let's say you, you start selling in the UK or in Europe. Do you want to ship everything from the state or do you want perhaps to have something that is much closer to your customer to reduce shipping time, to make sure that your NPS score goes up because like your customer gets the delivered in a couple of days? This is also becoming a very important topic for the brands. And the, in, the nice thing that the thing that I like is now the companies also see the link between how they could envisage before that this was like a cost to the company, like okay, it's, my shipping cost is quite a lot. But actually, they can now see the tie that it has to the customer's support, customer success in a sense that now if you your shipping time goes down by like a couple of days, your customers are going to be happy about it instead of two weeks or instead of one week, right? This is having a massive impact. Same thing goes when you're out of stock too often. You might lose the customers. They might not be happy. You always have that notify me with the back in stock apps or things like that. But if you have it in stock and you, your experience in the back office is so well run that your customers gets it in two days, this, was, this used to be overlooked. And now this is like one of the key topics. The customers need to be receiving their goods on time. They need to be happy. The quality of the product needs to be per perfect. And all of these are back office tasks that need to be streamlined. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And I like the fact that you, if we talk specifically about your platform, it looks like the dashboard is, now to be fair, I have never used your platform before, but at least from what I can tell from your website and the information that you provide there and the screenshots, it looks like A, it's super, like ridiculously easy to use. It looks like the analytics dashboard is super simple, super straightforward. It's very visual in nature, which I really like. So you take the data and you convert it into visual things that are very easy to digest and to see. And then also, I like the fact that there's an element of automation there that effectively can almost get you to the point where you're generating a sales order directly out of the, a purchase order rather, directly out of the platform. But then secondarily, I like the fact that you've got this SaaS model for the platform that is it almost seems frankly too cheap and i don't want to i don't want to say that cuz i don't want you to raise your prices but it seems ridiculously cheap cuz it's based on the amount of revenue that a business is doing and if it's up to 2 million dollars in revenue it's 119 bucks a month for 2 million to 10 million in revenue 249 bucks a month i'm talking like it's like less than 3 grand a, a year and then advanced from 10 million and above 499 a month this this feels like a super simple technology to onboard into the business be productive with it almost immediately, and it's not going to break the bank. So I, I really like the approach you've taken to this to democratize access to a technology that historically has really only been found in ERPs. Yeah, and as you said, democratizing operational excellence is our, it's our mission statement here. And the way we want to break the way things have been done is 
when you look at an ERP today and you look at a brand, like a, a new e-commerce brand, I think there's 10 words, 10, 10 worlds in between. And the, when you hear ERP, you get afraid by the word, just knowing everything that's coming at you. Like the amount of time it's terrifying. you implement, <laughs> the amount of, it's terrifying, the amount of the cost. And even when it's there, you're like, it does a lot of things, but there's a lot of things it doesn't do as well. And so for us, we live by the saying of less is more, and we need to be an extension of the brand. And that means design-wise, so UI and the UX, the feeling of accessibility from a usability perspective, a pricing standpoint, because obviously if we want to democratize it, we need to make it accessible to pretty much as many companies as possible. That's why right now the price is definitely very accessible for brands that we're working with. And let's see where this goes. But as you can imagine, it's in a strategy to be able to go up and up. But it's, 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 we're not intending to make all of our money just from the SaaS. So that's one of the reasons why we're making it accessible because the first things first, we realize what people need to get right is the demand planning. This is the starting point. Oh, lost it. Sorry about that. That was definitely my side. Sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. So. Sorry about that. I'll, anyways, we were talking about pricing and look, I think the democratization aspect of the pricing is super critical, super important and super valuable. But the other thing that I like is at the pricing tiers, normally with SaaS platforms, you'll get different pieces of functionality, modular functionality as you move up the tiers. But what you've done is you have made all of the functionality available in all the tiers. And so that way, small businesses can act like bigger businesses, right? And so that helps them to get to a place where they're popcorn that pops. And then that, of course, moves them up the tiers. And of course, you make more money. But then I think you were going to speak to, and I'll just, I'll get you to clarify this, that you almost want to become like a Shopify capital in the sense that you can provide working capital, bridging capital, inventory working capital. Because you have all this data to work from, you can do the analytics across the business. You can see what their inventory flow is like. You can see what their cash flow is like. You, you have access to all of the pertinent data to be able to effectively make a capital loan to these businesses, which then you can make money off of interest on the loans. And therefore, this almost feels like the thin end of the wedge. It helps you get into the business. It helps you to understand the business. It helps you to support the business. And then when you're supporting them, not only through technology and data, then you can support, start supporting them monetarily as well. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And you ju just going back to the SaaS and making, it ex making all the features accessible to it. Some, sometimes you, you run into a brand that makes a million a year, but that has a very complex supply chain because it's in the cosmetic space. They need to be able to understand the planning at a finished good level, but the supply is at a raw material level, all of the product components. That makes it exponentially more complex, but you're still a small brand. I'm going to be, am I going to be the person that's going to make this like super expensive because it's more complex? Of, we could, but at the same time, it's not great for the brand itself because they have a very important problem to solve. And then you have $75 million brands that are selling just on Shopify and they have a, a subscription they have 20 business SKUs. where 90% and they have 15 SKUs, exactly. And these guys are crushing it and they don't need maybe like half of the features that we have because they need the plan, they need the POs and that's pretty much it. And at the same time, could we basically charge these guys much more potentially because it's very critical for them to be to have the right stock. So we, on, only time will tell how this is going to go. But right now, we just want to make sure that we get a product that is very accessible to the, the middle tier, as we said earlier, of the Shopify space. And then... Exactly as you said, right, this is like a good way for companies to, to solve their demand and their supply planning, which is critical for the success of their brand. But then what comes in right after is su suppliers will ask you to pay. And when you're a small brand, you don't always have the upper end when it comes to negotiating your payment terms because your suppliers might be working with the very large customers and you're not really a priority. So the first thing you do for these brands is you give visibility, if you can, around your commitment for the year. And you can do that with Predico because we're building a plan, demand planning and supply planning. But then when it comes to negotiating your payment terms, it's become re really hard. And again, with COVID, the lead times have gotten longer. So the return on investment from buying your inventory to your supplier is also effectively going up. And it's become very hard for brands to invest their own cash reserves because they're putting their business at risk as well as getting loans from bank because interest rates have gone up and also raising VC money because trading equity for stock is not the best thing to do, right? If, especially if you're looking to build a very lean and profitable business. So what we want to provide is enabling you to remove some of the pressure that you've got on your shoulder and enable you to keep your, the money you've got in your bank account 
in your bank account or at least invest it in your growth. And because exactly like you said, because we've got very strong visibility on how you're doing right now, how you're likely to do in the future, which products are your best sellers and the ones that we recommend you to reorder in a specific amount of quantity. First of all, we're enabling you to become an operationally sound business. And when you do, when you become that, we are in a position to check whether you're eligible for some financing and therefore giving you that money, advancing it to your suppliers so that on the one hand, you don't, you keep your cash in your pocket, but on the other, perhaps as you become a very good customer from a lending perspective, we could go together to your suppliers and say, now that we believe very strongly in this business, instead of having 30-70 split, maybe we do 70 upfront and then 30 at delivery. And then you ask the suppliers, what sort of discount can you do for us? And we can help you negotiate better rates on, on, on your behalf. So that's where this is going and effectively closing that loop of enabling you to plan better, to give more visibility to your suppliers, then to pay those suppliers upfront in a very nice and healthy way so that you focus on the customer side of things, becoming just a, a, a better business. And I guess really what we're saying here in a nutshell is that you help businesses to improve the unit economics of their business across the board in every way. So you're effectively optimizing their unit economics as a brand and allowing them to be more profitable, to be more yeah. sustainable, right? And to also be more growth focused, right? To, to the areas where we have the opportunity to grow faster, we're going to focus on that. We're going to allocate more resources to that. The areas where we're not going to be able to grow as fast, we're going to de, we're going to dedicate resources to those areas. So I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Now, if people want to learn more about, if they want to reach out to you, is it best that they reach out to you directly on LinkedIn? Is that the best place? And then if they want to learn more about Predico, and I'll just spell it out and I'll also put a link in the show notes, it's Predico, P-R-E-D-I-K-O dot IO. So if they want to learn more about Predico, do they go to that URL? And if they want to reach out to you and have a chat to you directly, just reach out to you on LinkedIn. Is that the best way? That's the best way. I can also give my email or my the calendar for booking a time and discuss about that. I'm more than happy to do that as well. But yeah, we're very close to our customers and we're trying to develop relationships with, with businesses and be as close to them as possible. So if anybody has any questions on how things work or just looking for advice on how to become more operationally sound, be more than happy to spend some time with them. Lovely. And I'm guessing that your email address is just Yuri, Y-O-U-R-I, at Predico, I'm guessing? Yeah, Predico.io, exactly. Wow. That's super easy. Super easy. The benefit of being a co-founder. Love it. Yeah, first dibs <laughs> on email addresses. So I absolutely love it. Now, listen, we're coming to the end of our time together, and I get this really awesome opportunity for me to turn the microphone over to you, flip the script, let you ask me one question. Any question you like can be personal, can be professional. It's completely up to you. So I'm going to turn the microphone over to you, Yuri Moscovich from Predico. What is your question for me today? First of all, this is an awesome thing to do because obviously we're not prepared to it. Maybe yeah. the question I have for you is, what's the biggest lesson you've had so far by running this podcast? That there's a whole truckload of people out there that are smarter than me. There's that, <laughs> actually two lessons. That's the first. But second of all, this allows me to have conversations with super smart people that I could not, uh, they just would I wouldn't have access to them. I wouldn't even be able to have these conversations unless I had a podcast. And if you reach out to somebody on LinkedIn and you say, hey, can we have a virtual coffee for 15 minutes and just shoot the breeze about e-commerce? People are busy. They don't have a lot of time. And so if you can offer them something in exchange, i.e. maybe a bit of an, a bit of airtime and a bit of spotlight on their technology or what they're doing or on their personal brand or whatever it is, there's a little bit of a value exchange there is that I'm hopefully able to spotlight people and technology that would otherwise maybe not get any spotlight at all. But secondarily, I'm able to have these conversations and I'm able to learn things that I wouldn't be able to learn any other way. So I feel like it's a it's an absolute, hopefully, win-win. And as the podcast grows and gets bigger, and we're now nearly 240 episodes now, we're not just a startup podcast and people know I'm taking it seriously. And when you're 20, 30 episodes in, it's still hard to get people to say yes because they don't know whether you're going to be around because the average, the statistics around podcasts are really bad. Something like 98% of podcasts never get past episode 20. It's called mm. pod fade. And most people suffer from pod fade. It's really hard to be consistent with a podcast over multiple years. But now that I've done that and I've proven that I'm serious about the podcast, it gets easier and easier with time to get people to say yes to come on. That's awesome. And I think that's, that relates to one of my learnings, for example, when we were starting out, just as a side story, is you don't have a network, you have an idea, you want to reach out to people, like why would people take some time? Everybody's busy, etc. But when you're using 
like a, something in the middle that will break the ice, whether it's a specific pitch, whether it's your podcast, whether it's like interviewing them because they are experts in the field or anything like that, then all of a sudden tables turn and people are interested in talking to you, sharing advice, etc. And I feel this has been the philosophy for me when I was raising money because when we, I, once people told me like, when you are asking for money, sorry, you get advice. And when you are asking for advice, you get money. And so that's exactly the philosophy behind raising funds, for example, or just like you said, I want to meet more people. How can I do it? The conduit is your podcast, right? And you're growing a massive network and you're meeting awesome people. And so that's, that's amazing. Yeah, it's, I think it's a, hopefully a very fair trade-off and hopefully people that come on the podcast feel like it was a valuable use of their time. And I always hope we don't take payments. We offer the ability for brands to sponsor the podcast if they want to, but that's not a requirement to be on the podcast. I never want my editorial decisions to be dictated by who or who doesn't sponsor the podcast. I want to try to bring the best podcast best podcast content I can possibly create to the table without the influence of the commercials of it. And hey, look, if, if at some stage of my podcasting career, it, it gets big enough to where it's making good money. Basically, I subsidize the podcast out of my own pocket at the moment. It, eventually, mm -hmm. maybe it'll at least pay for itself. And then maybe eventually, maybe it'll even make a little bit of money. But for mm -hmm. me, the personal and professional benefit I get out of it in terms of making friends, and I've made a lot of friends through the podcast that then when I go to an event in North America, for example, or if I go to an a, event in ANZ that maybe I've only ever met them through the podcast, I've never met them in person before, then it's easier when I finally meet them in person. It's like, hey, I actually know this person. And it's an, it's an icebreaker that nothing else is the equivalent of this in terms of being an icebreaker. 100%. I couldn't agree more. Listen, Yuri, I have super appreciated your time. It's been an absolute pleasure and joy to speak to you. You clearly know your shit when it comes to what you do. I wish you absolutely every success and I can't wait to get you back on the pod, maybe another 12, 18 months or something like that and see what you've done with Predico in the meantime. And just before we wrap up, I forgot to ask this question earlier. Do you have one or two pieces of functionality that are super high on your radar that you'd like to roll out in the next, say, six months that are like top priorities for you guys? Yes, of course we do. There's one thing in particular that we're starting to look in look into is we've been focusing on Shopify brands or like e-commerce businesses that are selling mostly online. But obviously, as a company grows and they have a healthy unit economics and they want to acquire more customers, they are starting to diversify their acquisition channels. And that means they are getting into, for example, B2B wholesale online or in physical wholesalers. And But the fundamentals of predicting demand for B2B versus D2C is very different, right? We are currently working on a B2B planning and purchasing experience to make sure that if you're an omni-channel brand and you're selling to your customers through your Shopify store online on your website, but also you're selling through Walmart and whatnot, then you know we can basically serve you as well. So that's going to be one of the big focus for the rest of the year. Man, you just, you've topped yourself because this is near and dear to my heart because I work with so many B2B brands and there's a real lack of B2B e-commerce focused technology out there and enablement technology out there. Almost all of the enablement technology out there is focused on B2C and not B2B. So I'm super excited to, to hear more about this in the future as you roll this out because as you say, B2Bs are moving cartons, pallets, and containers. They're not moving individual items and it's a totally different ballgame. So very much looking forward to it. Yuri, thank you so much for your time. I super appreciate it. Are you a B2B or D2C e-commerce merchant? Then head over to greenwoodconsulting.net to learn how we can help you scale your business.